You love technology, you love your privacy, and you cherish freedom and the Constitution. This is our culture and our way of life, and it's under attack from powers that be who want to know all that we do while we know very little of what they do. Restore the Fourth is an organization seeking to restore balance, and we need your help. Please head to RestoreTheFourth.com slash donate to help support our work. That's RestoreTheNumber4TH.com slash donate. Thank you for your support. Your government doesn't feel you can be trusted with a powerful weapon, your thoughts. Encryption is a munition, and in the battle to keep your thoughts your own, it's your right to have military grade. This is Privacy Patriots episode number 9, recorded on January 7, 2018. The Patriots and its active members have received no legal instruments requiring us to turn over any information since our last podcast dated November 16th, 2017. My name is Fong. And I'm EJ. Welcome to the Privacy Patriots Podcast, the official podcast of Restore the Fourth. All right, so thanks for joining us again. I think we've got uh, an episode chock full of uh, some interesting items. Some uh, mystery. <laughs> a little intrigue. Um, I'm teasing a little bit what we're going to be doing later as part of our Patriots and Pariahs segment. We've got, I don't know, I'll just give one clue word. Uh, would leak be a good word? Potential, Potential leak. leak. Okay. I hope it's a leak. So uh, hang tight with us. We'll be joined by uh, a guest and examining that. Um, obviously, if you're listening to the podcast right on our website, you can see some of the imagery and it's probably spoiled. Uh, spoiling. You know, you could probably infer a lot if you're looking at that while you're listening to us, but we get into that a bit later. So in the meantime, a lot of news items. As always, the the fight for privacy seems to be fought daily, if not hourly, on several different fronts. First up, of course, we've been talking about Section 702 reform. That's, you know, the FISA NSA surveillance that, you know, that's the heart of the Snowden revelations. The clauses for those uh, were set to sunset on December 31st, but uh, as is expected, they... Uh, couldn't just let a good thing go, so they extended the provision to January 19th uh, as part of a continuing resolution in Congress. So, But just the night before we recorded, we got uh, notice that another proposed bill has been f- put forth uh, in Congress, S-139, and if you've been following, there were a million different bills that were put forth as uh, it was the, the Liberty Act, the Rights Act, and you know a bunch of other ones. And they um, spanned the whole spectrum from let's really curtail this to let's enhance it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this new one is based on one of the previous uh, HP SCI bills, which I wasn't, that one I wasn't all that familiar with. But uh, the House and Senate Intelligence Committee drew this one up. What's interesting is this bill number, S-139, was an existing bill that was already voted through committee and, and it already made it to the floor, but it was about DNA testing. 
Hmm. It had nothing to do with Section 702 or surveillance reform. Until it suddenly did. Well, as it was described, the words hollowed out were used uh, when it was explained to me. uh, And the content was completely replaced. It has nothing to do with DNA anymore and now is a 702 reform bill. But I guess this is not all that common in Congress, but... The technique is to avoid having to start from ground zero and have it go through committee and have to get approved. You know, if it weren't in our favor, you know, uh, such a technique might be kind of, you know, that's kind of sneaky if you think about it. Like, I don't know, what's a good analogy? It would be like if I posted something on Reddit and people made all these comments and, you know, and it was about, it was it was a nice post about, like, kittens and puppies and they make it all these comments like i love it blah 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 and i go back and edit it uh <laughs> to be uh you know i don't know a, a white power rant or something <laughs> you know <laughs> but i don't know yeah. however we get it done uh i think this has been tied up in debate in congress for so long um yeah but my understanding is the this S-139 bill as it stands is not too attractive. Uh, Restore the Fourth is not supporting it as is. But um, as happened in late 2017 with some of the other bills, there were then further attempts to amend the bills. So uh, we have a couple representatives that have or are due to do that. Um, Representative Amash uh, is seeking to mend S-139 essentially with what was contained in the previous USA Rights Act, which it does a number of things. The big thing is that it, you know, it requires a, a warrant for any kind of queries. But the USA Rights Act, I would say, from our perspective, a restore to the fourth uh, was essentially a wish list of everything we could have wanted for surveillance reform. Um but in terms of a warrant for queries, i.e. The, the backdoor searches, you probably heard that term floated around, um, you know, the FBI would have access to this NSA database and um, they could do queries all they wanted without warrants, which still, in my mind, allows for, you know, quote-unquote phishing expeditions, which yeah. are is an activity that's expressly uh, what the Fourth Amendment is there to protect against. But um, so Amash's uh, amendment would also seek to close uh, the loophole where intelligence could do reverse targeting on Americans, i.e., you know, ostensibly choosing a foreign target when the true purpose is to target an American that happens to be interacting with that primary target. So, um, and then it also codifies the ban on, quote, about collection. And a big thing, this is new to me, it restores the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board's authority to report on foreign surveillance programs. Hmm. (laughs) Because apparently... They were not allowed to do such a thing up till now. <laughs> is that public reporting, or is this just a report they generate? Report to Congress, I would, oh, okay. I, is my understanding. Um, so uh, also Ted Poe, a Republican of Texas, and uh, Zoe Lofgren, of, a Democrat of California, are also seeking to, to 
push forth proposed amendments to S one thirty nine, but we have yet to see uh, the the draft of that. But um, you know, once again, we we see um, surveillance reform uh, knows no side of the aisle here. Uh, as often as the case, we see co sponsorships on uh, both Republican and Democrats working together. And um, also people from both sides champion more surveillance. That's true. So, <laughs> um, one interesting thing is that uh, uh, Senator Ron Wyden, a Democrat from Oregon, is seeking to clarify that Section 702 does not authorize the collection of communications known to be entirely domestic. <laughs> Which, there isn't even really a thing anymore, because... You know, you send a message uh, from Gmail to your friend across town. Mm. Who knows what server is that ping? Oh, that's true. Maybe the fastest route is to bump over to England and bump back versus going to Mountain View. Yeah. So. But, uh, you know, to a certain extent, we're wondering if he's being a little cryptic, if he's implying... If he's commenting on something that he can't share because yeah. of, uh, you know, being... Positions he might the, hold on yeah, various committees. The committees that he has, you know, responsibility to keep secret. But it's like one of those things, like, does it kind of imply, you know, what does he know about um, collecting just flat-out domestic communications? Is, is there some more going on than we know? So, you know, from Restore the Fourth's point of view, we're urging people to contact their representatives immediately and we have a link up on uh, our website to locate your proper representative but you know let them know that you oppose the s-139 bill as it stands in its pure form um, that you want them to support the amash amendment and you know hopefully (laughs) we'll get some closure to this in in the near future but we got to make sure our voice is heard. So the next up, the other big headline we would be amiss if we didn't touch on the massive gaping vulnerabilities that were found in, in several CPUs. Uh, there were the exploits found in various chips. I'm referring to what's known as Meltdown and Spectre. You know, I kind of wanted to break this down a bit and, you know, it, it's... It, it was something that was a bit tough for even me to, to understand, you know, what the implications were, how it, it was possible. But my understanding that the meltdown vulnerability, for the most part, affects Intel X64 chips. But um, Yeah, with some other um, AMD chips being thrown in there, but mm. uh, only a handful. Yeah. Now, the Spectre vulnerability... In my understanding, it's harder to exploit, but it affects many more chips in the ARM and AMD families in, in addition. And, uh, well, I forget which one. Between the two, you have a good coverage of uh, <laughs> pretty much every Intel chip that's being used. Yeah. In now, here's what I understand, and, and, and tell me you know, if it jives with what you know. Yeah. Uh, my understanding is, is is the problem lies in the design of how memory access and computation is uh, performed by uh, these chips between the kernel and user spaces in a given operating system. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, pretty much the heart of it. Yeah. 
I mean, that's kind of like the most base uh, mechanisms of security in computer operating systems, right? That you only let certain privileged functions happen, get, get performed uh, by the quote-unquote kernel, the, the lowest yeah. level of code that makes up the OS, and then um, the user space that the applications interact with directly have to then kind of make requests Right. Ha have the uh, on behalf of the kernel, which then goes on to execute the CPU. Is that kind yeah, of a layman's explanation? Yeah, there's a, a separation of uh, church and state to mm -hmm. say. Yeah, that, you know, your application can access the memory that is assigned to it, mm -hmm. and if it needs something else, it has to send a request, sure. and then that information is returned to it. Yeah. Uh, in the interest of speed and efficiency modern processors and i'm saying modern as in uh like post 1980s okay. uh, <laughs> have been doing uh i forgot the actual term for this um, is it but is it speculative yes yeah, speculative ex speculative execution. execution so when they get a request for a piece of memory they start the read process on that piece of memory while checking if the application requesting it can access it. Okay. And then if it can't access it, it doesn't return anything. However, by starting the read process, you load some of that memory into a buffer, and you can then, through some complex stuff, check if data was loaded into a buffer, and by that you can start to build up of an image of what that data is. Okay. If I can make a, an appropriate analogy, is it kind of like the the FBI making uh, queries in the NSA database, but promising that they're not going to look at the contents until they get a warrant? Yeah, it's similar. <laughs> uh, and actually, for uh, listeners who are familiar with XKCD, uh, I think it's XKCD the 19... comic strip. Yeah, XKCD 1938... Mm -hmm. uh, has a has a pretty funny explanation of it that uh, invokes the trolley problem. All right, I'll have to link that. Yeah. So the result, in my understanding, is just that software that would take advantage of this exploit could potentially access private data from other applications that it shouldn't be privy to, stuff yes. that it should be walled off from yeah. is the bottom line. Uh, and that potentially could be things as, as critical as passwords and encryption keys and things like that, right? Yeah. Um, and I think it was Mozilla or somebody, uh, they didn't demo, but they sort of provided proof that this could be executed through a browser using JavaScript. Oh, boy. Which <laughs> is terrifying. So, uh, and I, I, I was reading that it kind of causes particular concern in cloud environments uh, just on, on the sheer fact that you know on your desktop it's a matter of you know one application versus another and what each application can access but in in a cloud environment it's one customer uh, potentially being able to spy on another customer they are in any virtualized environment yeah you could have you know one compromised uh virtual server uh, could spy on potentially many other virtual servers because of how the cloud works you know yeah multiple virtual machines running on the same hardware so 
I, I guess uh, multiple software developers have scrambled to release patches, um, and, and I guess software is the underlining thing, because my understanding is that you can't fix this by applying a patch to, say, chip firmware or BIOS or anything at that low level, because it, it, this is more something where the ch to, to fix it inherently, the chip would just have to be redesigned. Yeah. Um, physically, so, and and the development pipeline on new CPU architectures is a couple of years. So yeah, we're looking at you know 2020 or later. Yeah. So in the meantime, we have software patches for this, which uh, not all of them, but some of them are kind of a hot mess. Okay. <laughs> uh, and yeah, my understanding was that some of these patches could result in between 5 and 30% performance loss yeah. of what you're used to on a, on a given CPU. Yeah, which I was reading this morning, um, uh, I think we're up to two different game companies basically chalked up a bunch of performance issues to uh, patching this. And wow. Whether or not that's true or not, you know, doesn't really matter. It's the fact that this is now out there, so people are obviously going to start patching stuff. So any sort of like issues, you can sweep under the rug and be like, "Oh, we patched it." <laughs> now let me see if you know enough to kind of confirm whether my understanding is right. It, it, does the performance loss just is that just chalked up to the fact that these these patches are are just simply shutting off the ability to do speculative execution? I think so. Uh, I think so. It's not really the realm of my expertise, yeah. but... I mean, I'm wondering, is it a good analogy? Is speculative execution kind of like the CPU and, and processing equivalent of, say, a the cache on a hard drive? Yeah. Yeah. It's... Like, read, you're reading ahead, in a way. Yeah. It's preparing that cache. Yeah. And then if you need it, it's really quick yeah. to get it. And if you don't, it takes slightly longer. But, yeah. you know, up until now, no harm, no foul. But if you it turns out. It would go to, it would stand a reason if you can't read ahead, then you're not going to, yeah. you're not going to get the speed boost that, that would normally allow you. Yeah. So I guess, what can we advise? Just run your updates, patch your operating systems. <laughs> And uh, yeah. build a new computer when the new chips come Basically. out. <laughs> and if that, you know, 5 to 30% performance hit is a big issue for you, you're probably going to need to upgrade some hardware. Something I forgot that I wanted to mention. Uh, it turns out that the Intel CEO, um, the way, you know, these bug reports work is companies are given a number of months uh, notice ahead of time and then they start to work on patches and stuff so that when it's announced uh, you know there isn't this huge like catch up game basically uh, responsible yeah. disclosure is the name of sure. it uh, so I think it was in September or October the Intel CEO sold millions and millions of dollars of Intel stock okay you know because insider trading mm. yeah so next up, uh, a couple things in the realm of uh, automatic license plate readers, or ALPERS. The Department of Homeland Security uh, is expanding its license plate dragnet, because, of course, they're always expanding. <laughs> More is better. <laughs> uh, so uh, DHS has uh, released 
uh, a privacy impact assessment, a PIA, on its use of license plate readers. I guess in spirit that was an okay thing for them to do. But you know, if you're not familiar, to, just to get you up to speed, if you're not familiar with license plate readers, they basically scan license plates on automobiles uh, using optical character recognition and then store the the plate number and then correlate them with the time that it was scanned and uh, the location where the the camera was at the time and puts all that information into a database Uh, you know most of the time that's what ends up happening with it in one form or another uh, so it makes for uh, a nice big dragnet of data amounting to everywhere you've been in your vehicle, and that could be retroactively <laughs> searched. So DHS operates uh, fixed license plate readers at border crossings and airports, but they also operate readers on vehicles patrolling within 100 miles of the physical border, which some people may not be uh, aware of uh, the ACLU likes to call it the Constitution Free Zone, yeah. um, and when you look at where 100 miles encroaching from the physical border lies, I think that makes all of Florida and all of Maine at least all, all of Florida all a of complete Maine, Constitution Free Zone. Most <laughs> of the uh, like population dense areas of the country are covered by it. Yeah. I think. Now, by constitution-free zone, we were kind of implying things, uh, implying the fact that border patrol agents can ostensibly do many things at the border um, that would be unconstitutional inside the country. Uh, The fact that certain court cases have allowed them to start um, carrying on this way 100 miles within the border is truly scary and un-American, in my opinion. With that background, I'll give some good news in this report. They said they they noted that their plans for a national database for all of this license plate reader data has been dropped. But, however, as uh, I've found to be the case on many uh, local implementations of license plate readers, um, they're intermingling or sharing the data they collect with existing law enforcement databases. They're sharing it with other agencies, and then they're storing it in databases. And then uh, if they're all sharing data, and um, then you basically have an ad hoc national database, and basically it's manifested without having to inform the public or hire a contractor to, to build one. Um, and it kind of makes it a moving target too, because it's not all nicely stored in one place for you know activists like us to point the finger at. Yeah, the number I saw was they're sharing this with over 750 agencies, which <laughs> I, you know, assuming is federal level agencies like the FBI, you know, um, immigration control, et cetera, et cetera, but also like. Uh, the New York City Police Department and maybe Sacramento Police Department and even small town municipalities, which mm-hmm. is how you very quickly get to that 750 number. Jeez. Yeah. Um, so, so far, there's been not much you could do to kind of uh, protect your privacy from these license plate readers, but uh, the the Electronic Frontier Foundation is attempting to, to uh, see if it can 
make a small win in California uh, regarding these. Uh, they're a sponsor of uh, State Bill 712 out there uh, that was introduced by uh, State Senator Joel Anderson. Um, what this would simply allow drivers to do would be to cover their license plate when lawfully parked. Because right. generally, um, you know, I don't know if it's under purview of federal or state laws, but in general, you're not allowed to obscure your license plate in any way, uh, and that includes uh, obscuring them from these license plate readers, which, which really gets my goat because that was not within the purview of what license plates were for when we decided that people needed to have them on their cars. But uh, the the foothold they got here <laughs> is in California. It's legal to, while legally parked, cover your car with some sort of uh, like covering, like yeah. a tarp, to uh, protect against the elements. Yeah. And their argument is, well, if you can do that, surely it's reasonable to be allowed to cover a portion of your car, mm. say the roof or the license plate. Mm-hmm. You know, which. I would agree with. So as it stands currently, if I get this picture, like you could cut in California, you could cover your entire car with like a wrap or a tarp. And that could include the license plate. That's legal. But if you cover only your license plate, then uh, you're breaking the law. Yeah. (laughs) And I don't know if it's only when you're parked on your property or if it's like you go out somewhere and you park there and if you could do it there. I, Um, you know, uh, as minor as this sounds, I think it is an important first step because um, my understanding is a lot of these databases get uh, accessed by private entities like uh, repo services and like um, you know e- even in our area here, I've I've known instances of repo trucks with scanners going through you know, corporate office parking lots and just scanning license plates looking for, um, you know, vehicles with whose uh, payments are in arrears that they can tow off. Yeah, and uh, this article the EFF put up in uh, talking about their um, suit and this bill and stuff uh, goes on to talk about how the Department of Homeland Security is basically outsourcing the scanning of license plates to companies who then sell this data as uh, part of this whole big data craze. Yeah. And like, oh, you can predict all sorts of things about your consumers, and it's very useful in advertising because you know where they shop, yeah. and you know where they pray, and you know where they go to school. Yeah, in New and, York City, they were caught scanning the yeah. license plates of vehicles in a parking lot in a mosque. Yeah, and I think, what is it, uh, in Sacramento they said, uh, you know, we found that less than 0.1% of license plate data collected by the police was connected to a crime at the point of collection, but the remaining 99.9% of the data is stored and shared anyways. Mm. So um, jumping back to the border for a bit... Apparently, uh, warrantless uh, searches of phones and laptops, tablets, etc., at the U.S. border has hit record levels. You know, like I mentioned before, there are all these things that uh, are allowed to be performed at the border that would not be allowed in uh, mainland USA. 
um, and this this is one of them. You know, a lot of people traveling through the border are finding they're being demanded to to turn over their phone or laptop yeah. for inspection. And there was uh, some talk about being forced to show your social media or provide social media details. Yeah. yeah. But um, so the new figures that were released Friday show that uh, Customs and Border Protection officers have searched 30,000 plus devices between October 2016 and September 2017. That's which is amounted to an increase of about 60% year after year. So uh, moving on, Amazon gave a record amount of data to government. Um, they put out their own report in, in an attempt to be transparent, uh, so maybe we'll give them that. Yeah, and it's a good trend for companies to provide these transparency reports, mm-hmm. and I appreciate it. However, the contents of them aren't always uh, reassuring. No. So this report focuses solely on their Amazon Web Services, you know, their virtualized cloud cluster. So the, yeah. this didn't really concern you know your shopping habits on Amazon. Who knows what where that's going? But um, just for AWS, uh, just in half a year between January and, and June of last year, there were uh, just under 2,000 different requests from government, uh, which was a rise from uh, the previous report. Uh, I guess they they put these out every six months. About 1,600 subpoenas they received, of which the company fully complied with 42% of them. Uh, There were 229 search warrants, of which the company complied with 44% of them. And lastly, uh, there were 89 other court orders, of which they complied with about 50%. So, And these are what percentages of what they fully complied with. So we don't know to what degree they complied with uh, portions of the other percentages. So... Here's an interesting thing from Arizona. Apparently, when you get a driver's license in Arizona, that basically puts your mugshot in a perpetual criminal lineup because um, the images of licensed drivers in Arizona that are taken out of the DMV are stored in a government database that uses facial recognition technology to see if you really who you, you are who you are. Um, or if you're stealing someone else's identity. So they have issued press releases touting its successes, but other than that, they haven't been informing people who apply for a license that this is going to happen to their likeness, that these photos will be scanned perpetually against other photos for law enforcement purposes. Those two words, perpetual lineup, are kind of like summarize my biggest worry about facial recognition in in general biometrics and you know police surveillance technology in general yeah just giant databases of data somebody is always looking to see if you're committing a crime yeah but you know it kind of skirts the principle of reasonable suspicion and targeted investigation that an individual has to have a reasonable suspicion that they are committing a crime and this is not an individual suspicion this is just taking every driver as a suspect 
Yeah. And and checking on them. So I I don't know. I mean, should we be doing that? No. I don't. I don't think we should. <laughs> I, I don't want to answer too hastily for the entirety of the country. Yeah. Um. P.S. The answer is we shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> so lastly, in international news, I want to talk about uh, what amounts to a, a huge surveillance state that's being created in the Xinjiang province of China, and I fully admit I'm probably mispronouncing that. It's X-I-N-J-I-A-N-G. But this is a a particular province in in China that's home to a a Muslim ethnic minority. Yeah, the Uyghur minority, I believe it is. Um, This is China's remote northwestern uh, Mm -hmm. region, something like I think it's like 10% of the area is habitable. Mm. Most of it's desert. Yeah. So thousands of Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities have been disappearing into so-called political education centers, apparently for offenses as egregious as using Western social media apps and studying abroad in Muslim countries. But, uh, you know, that's always been the typical mo in In the people's republic of china what's new and exciting is they are using this province as kind of a testing ground for all sorts of new and invasive toys you know facial recognition which we've touched on the the implications of uh but apparently that kind of technology with with cameras in public is ubiquitous throughout this area of china for instance, 49 people ended up being arrested at this one particular event when cameras that were on site matched their faces against the national police database and showed that they were sus- suspects of crime like theft and drug use. Yeah, and a uh, BBC reporter got uh quote-unquote unprecedented access to this whole surveillance apparatus oh, really? in um, sort of like a publicity stunt, it looks like, okay. uh, with the Chinese government, where basically he tried to evade detection um, while the police tried to find him with the CCTV cameras, and okay. it took them under seven minutes. Okay, so it was a live game of Where's Waldo, basically. Yeah, and... <laughs> And just like chess, the computer was better than the yeah. humans. I mean, they have <laughs> cameras covering most of the city. They have algorithms that match, uh, well, are doing facial detection, which, yeah. you know, and then they have, like, uh, machine learning algorithms behind the scene extrapolating your ethnicity, your gender, your age, and matching that against the... Uh, China has um, national ID cards, so it's matching against that. It's matching against visas. It's matching against criminal lineups. Coming soon to a Trump America near you? I don't know. But so um, the other thing they were they've been doing in in Xinjiang is um, they mandated that everyone has to have a, this spyware installed on their devices. Basically, it does a number of things from it. it searches through your phone storage and checks the hashes of media files to make sure you aren't holding any illegal images. So if you have any pictures of the Tiananmen Square on there, then you're going to be automatically detected in big trouble. Um, It censors images and memes uh, as they are sent 
using uh, Chinese instant message services. Meanwhile, like it's not only that this is mandated, but the government is even setting up random checkpoints on the streets. You know, you have to turn over your phone or what have you yeah. to have a check to make sure this spyware is properly installed on your smartphone. And it does do some sort of uh, like antiviral and um, sort of like memory management stuff. So it's not all terrible. <laughs> it's just 98% terrible. Yeah. Even if it did just that, I don't know if I'd want the government mandating oh, mm, which no. <laughs> which antivirus I needed to run. <laughs> no, definitely not. You must run Red Star. Uh, I had a friend try and install Red Star once. <laughs> Didn't go well. Uh, so, yeah, if you don't have this app, if you live in this province and, and you don't have this on your phone, you can be uh, sent to jail for up to 10 days. Um, the last part of the reach of of the surveillance techniques in this part of China uh, was wild to me. They're requiring QR codes be etched etched on, uh, in, onto knives, onto like kitchen knives, and yeah. uh, I think it's anything with a blade over some inches. I'm sure. So knife shop owners uh, apparently are required to spend thousands of dollars on the, these machines now that. Uh, takes every customer's ID, card number, their photo, their ethnicity, and their address and embeds it into a QR code, which then is laser etched onto the side of the blade. Yeah, at the time of purchase. So this is intended to trace a knife back to its owner in the event it's used to commit acts of violence. So <laughs> so basically, uh, the Chinese are doing better on knife control than we are on gun control. Which yeah. way you want to go with that, I don't know, but... It's, it's some Black Mirror level stuff. Yeah. And with that, you know what it's time for. Patriots and Pariahs. Alright, so uh, as you know, every episode we, we pick a Patriot and a Pariah to highlight uh, based on you know how they've either helped or hindered the fight for privacy... And today our patriot is only to be known as Divide by Zero. Uh, he joins us on the line, actually. He's from Deep Dot Web, uh, writes columns for them. And um, as part of today's P- Patriots and Pariahs, my understanding is we have a, a pretty big revelation that you want to share with us. Yeah, so uh, I found, uh, a friend sent me um, an image that uh, in the screen was a Army document, which uh, it was talking about a joint army and NSA um, project um, to try and get more resources to uh, finally monitor Monero, which is an anonymous cryptocurrency. Yeah, so I I've got the um, document in front of me, and um, we've got it on our website uh, for listeners want to take a look at it. I, you know, I, I'm going to read through this briefly, but could you tell us initially, you know, how did, how did we get a hold of this? And this is, we don't have the document itself. This is literally the image of uh, somebody viewing the document on their, on their screen, and they took a photo of their screen. But what do we know about where this came from, or where did we find it? Um, so the origin is that, well, a friend had uh, sent me a, I um, did a reverse image search, and, uh, you know, that it originated from 4chan slash biz. Okay. Um, 
interesting because no media organization that I know, uh, you know, investigated it. Uh, yeah, I found one small unknown website that wrote something up on it, but uh, otherwise nothing else. But this is this document uh, that I'm about to read. It seems to be, insofar as somebody's put this image of it up on 4chan allegedly uh we uh, it seems to be an attempt by somebody to to leak information from the army's uh cyber protection division yeah cyber protection brigade okay so um taking a look at this real quick uh uh this is on letterhead from the department of the army u.s army cyber protection brigade in uh, fort gordon georgia um it, it's dated the 21st of August 2017, and, and uh, all throughout there's a lot of abbreviations we, we may or may not know uh, the meaning of, but uh, top left there's ARCC-ZXA, and uh, it's a subject memorandum for record, additional resource request for ACC project, and um, I'm going to read through a number of the b- bullet points in this document and um, we, we can discuss each one uh, the first one says second battalion joint NSA CPT anonymous cryptocurrency project needs additional support in the form of new hires and additional funding to meet GWOT and drug interdiction objectives outlined in in July's command update brief I just want to say uh, GWOT is um, uh, global war on terrorism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And below this bullet point, there's two sub sub bullets. Uh, it says requesting authorization to add additional civilian consultants to the ACC project and to initiate their SCI investigations. Lastly, requesting additional funds for Class Seven and and Nine amounts indicated in attached cost analysis worksheet. So. Um, I don't think we're getting to the real exciting part yet. We have more more to go through here, but um, the ACC and SCI abbreviations. Do we have any guesses as to what those acronyms? Um, I actually those were a couple of the acronyms I didn't uh, get a chance to uh, check out yet. Yeah. Yeah, I I could find things for them, but it doesn't entirely seem to fit. Like ACC. Uh, the closest I could get was the Army Cyber Command, mm-hmm. and for SCI, yeah. Special Criminal Investigation, which... Yeah. So, I mean, it's a good point to stop and, and note that we're presenting this, but in the context of, of complete conjecture, and that includes what some of these terms mean. We're just taking guesses. Some of some of them I think we've, we've kind of figured out. But uh, we can't vouch for uh, for this document, especially since it is a, a photo of something appearing on someone's screen. But it's intriguing, especially as we move on to the second bullet point. Uh, it says, the success we have had with Tor, I2P, and VPN cannot be replicated with those currencies that do not rely on nodes. There is a growing trend in the employment of stealth address and ring signatures that will require additional R&D, which I assume is research and development. Please reference the weekly SITREP, S-I-T-R-E-P, on S-I-P-R. 
therapist situation report. Okay. And uh, did, did we infer that SIPR? Yeah, SIPR refers to SIPR-NET, which is the DOD and DOS's uh, it's Department of Defense and Department of State's um, internal intranet for transmitting classified documents. Okay. Um, yeah, so it says, please reference the SITREP on SIPR for more details regarding the TTPs involved. And is that something out of office space? <laughs> uh, TTPs, as far as I know, and this is mostly my recollection from conversations with a friend of mine who's in the Air Force, refer to tactics, techniques, and procedures, and they're sort of very in-depth how-to documents that walk somebody through how to do something. You know, it could be operating a radio machine to uh, fixing a leaky dishwasher or, or something. Um, yeah. If if they're what I'm thinking about, the armed forces love these documents, and they basically are just like uh, a binder you can hand somebody with very little training, and you can sort of walk them through a process. Okay. So we've got a couple more bullet points to go here, but I think number two is the juiciest, so should we, we should spend some time kind of breaking that down. Um, the first sentence... What what are your take on it? I you know I kind of infer that they've been able to defeat the anonymity or other protections that we take for granted with things like Tor and VPN. What what are your thoughts on on that aspect? Um, well, I think it's pretty significant. Uh, uh, yeah, it's definitely one of the biggest issues in in the document. Um, so basically, I think what it means is that they have they've had some successes. I don't think that necessarily means that it's completely compromised, but it does sound like, um, like at least with torn ITP that the government's running their own nerds. Okay. To, uh, so, know, uh, so we're, we suggest we're suggesting that they're running their own tour nodes. Yeah. Okay. Now, um, and are we specifically talking exit nodes? I'm not sure. Probably all, all of the above. The entry nodes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And we've known for the a while that the FBI has been doing a lot of analysis and had a significant interest in Tor and capturing traffic and um, figuring out what's going on. So it's not a huge shock, but. It is to a degree a revelation that yeah. you know there is ongoing development in this area from multiple different agencies, multiple different agendas. So, aside from the implied revelation about Tor and VPNs, um, they seem to be correlating, you know, whatever past success that they're referring to, correlating that to what they're trying to do now with cryptocurrencies in some manner. So uh, can we infer anything about that, especially when they refer to the employment of stealth address and ring signatures? Yeah, so they're, they're referring to, um, well, most likely referring to Monero, um, but there's other ones like uh, Aon or Eon, which is true, but um, yep. uh, basically that kind of means, that, uh, to me, I, I, what I got out of it was that they can't, um, they can't find a way to monitor it. The way Monero tra transactions will work is that, um, unlike what's a Bitcoin transaction where anybody can go uh, to a blockchain explorer and see which Bitcoin address sent what to, you know, to 
we were receiving address was, how much it was. Uh, but with Monero, it's, you cannot, it's like an opaque blockchain, so you cannot find out who sent Monero to who or how much was sent or how much is in an account. Okay. So that that's probably the primary differentiator between a currency like Monero compared to the traditional Bitcoin. Yeah. And what's interesting is what goes unsaid here when they say uh, the success we have had with Tor, I2P, and VPN cannot be replicated with those cryptocurrencies that do not rely on nodes. Okay. They're sort of just precluding that that success can be replicated with any that do rely on nodes. Yeah. So... Now, uh, myself included, but for the benefit of our listeners, you know, I, I'm trying to weave into this kind of a, a, a bit of under-the-hood cryptocurrency primer of <laughs> sorts. So, basically, um, the blockchain that Bitcoin and, and traditional cryptocurrencies use, they work on nodes similar to what you would find in, in something like Tor? Well, I'm by no means an expert in this area uh, and don't pretend to be. But my understanding is that, yeah, for um, for Bitcoin specifically, we'll use that as it's the biggest example, you have nodes, which are people who are processing transactions, and they, you know, you have to get a number of verifications on a specific transaction before it is written to the blockchain. Mm-hmm. Like, it's sort of put out there tentatively, and then once that transaction is... Um, confirmed a number of times by various people running these Bitcoin nodes around the world, then it's uh, added to the blockchain Mm -hmm. as an entry in the ledger. Mm -hmm. So if you could compromise, or you don't even really need to compromise them, you can just observe the nodes and see what is being sent to who and... As divide by zero implied, they're, they're kind of transparent anyway. Yeah. The, you can. Oh yeah. You, you can, can observe, you know, access the node and reference what transactions it's performed and yeah. details about them. And since it's public, there are websites that make a nice GUI for this, where you can look up a Bitcoin address and see its transaction history. Mm-hmm. Um, and as more and more people get into Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general, more and more of the exchanges are requiring that people provide. Uh, one or in more cases several forms of government ID so that they can comply with various regulations and tax laws mm. so more and more you can tie people to a Bitcoin address so continuing with this second bullet point if I'm kind of getting a, a feel from this is that they're concerned because they're not able to kind of keep an eye on things with Monero and some of these these newer cryptocurrencies because uh, the nodes and the trans, the transactions are not, uh, pu- you know, open purview. Yeah, that's that's I mean, my read. That what you, how you would read it? Divide by zero. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Especially, I think, in the realm of uh, online drug transactions, which, uh, based on one analysis I said or saw, wasn't even like the largest form of cryptocurrency usage, but. <clears throat> Nevertheless, you know, this this whole project seems to circle back to the global war on terror and drug investigation and drug enforcement. Okay. So obviously, with any of those things, you're going to want to follow the money. Yeah. Like anything in life. Um, <laughs> but on to the third bullet point, we have, uh, it says bluff colon B-U, uh, B-L-U-F. 
in order up front. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Can you expand upon that? Oh yeah. Uh, I, that was just one of the acronyms I, I looked up, and it, um, it stands for bottom line up front, basically. Yeah, getting the bottom line up front, like you know, the bottom line of this whole thing is that you know they need this, and he's just putting it forward. Okay. <laughs> so I'm re- I'm reading this thinking it's a it's a military like, acronym, and it's just. I mean, LOL. It could be. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it says, in order to put the CPT back on track, we need to identify and employ additional personnel who are familiar with the crypto note code available for use in anonymous currencies. So the the two things to break out of that, I think, would be CPT. Uh, we're just... Assuming that's short for Cyber Protection Task Force, maybe? Yeah, or team or um, something. Or team, yeah. But um, can either of you tell us about CryptoNode and what, what the implication is here? Yeah, it's uh, like the protocol that Monero um, is built on. Um, it's, uh, I forget the name of the, the protocol for Bitcoin. Um, that like a lot of a lot of other coins like Litecoin and Namecoin these um but yeah it's, it's basically just a, a new way to implement uh cryptocurrencies I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a I think it's an application layer protocol that Monero is built off of. Um and uh, there's some other cryptocurrencies uh, built off of it, none of which I'd ever heard of, which I guess isn't surprising given that there's, you know, hundreds and hundreds of them each uh, and more every day. Mm-hmm. But it, it seems like they're looking for developers uh, with experience using that or, you know, people have implemented it in the past, which I don't know how successful they'll be in that particular hunt. So the last two bullet points are pretty benign. Uh, number four, it says include this request for discussion at the next training meeting. Bullet point five says uh, point of contact for this memorandum is CW4 Henry James P at uh, DSN, and then it's followed by what looks like a phone number. But we had determined that a DSN is a is a internal phone number used by the military. Is that correct? And CW. Oh, yeah, CW4 is the Commission Warrant Officer. Okay. Yeah. Um, and and for like, me, who's kind of ignorant about the military and its structure, what, do we know what it, what that would constitute? Uh, yeah, my friend who I mentioned uh, previously, who's in the Air Force, uh, uh, we had a long conversation. This was one of his points. Uh, warrant officers are basically. Uh, technical specialists in an area um so he's a tech sergeant um and not the army um but in the army and i believe the marine corps but i could be wrong uh you can progress from like a technical or a tech sergeant to warrant officers which um there's a whole bunch of different grades i think there might be five of them and this guy's four out of five let's say um and instead of being like a manager or 
you know, being moved around, you have one specific skill set or one specific area that you focus on and you become a technical lead and, like, the go-to person for, like, your battalion or whatever. Like, you're, you're not necessarily the only expert. person, but, yeah, you're a subject matter expert. It's a, it's a very technical mm-hmm. position. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if this guy has a master's in something or... Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if we take a step back uh, from this, having gone through it now, um, you know, what are you, what are your overall takes on this alleged document? Uh, well, I think uh, the people I've talked uh, to about this document, um, like for people who are formerly in the Army and uh, people who are experts on cryptocurrencies, they all, they all said that it definitely seemed like it was plausible. Um, I think there's, there's a possibility that it might have been intentionally leaked to, you know, create fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And, uh, but, you know, what else is odd is that there is a picture of somebody's uh, TAC, uh, their, I think it's Common Access Card, that the Department of Defense uses. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, if you look at the image uh, off to, almost to the bottom right, uh, there's another screen, and then kind of hanging out behind that screen looks like an ID badge of sorts, that, and yeah. that's what you're referencing. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not very clear, but, um, I mean, is it? Is there anything that we can I, infer from the presence of this? Well, <clears throat> from what I understand, you know, all the military personnel have these badges, and they have a smart card in it. And uh, if you look down at the keyboard, it says smart card terminal on it. So to log in, you basically have to insert your card, and that contains your authentication mm-hmm. stuff. So to pull up this document, somebody had to have logged in. And now huh. whether or not the person taking this photo is that guy or not, Yeah. and looking at the picture, it looks like a guy, is... An entirely different story. Like, maybe he walked away, and I'm sure there's <laughs> procedures about taking your card out when you walk yeah. away. Or, you know, maybe he went yeah. I mean, any, somewhere else and somebody snapped a picture of it. Anything is possible, but the fact that we see this document and this ID and shot at least may, maybe moves us a, a step in the direction that potentially that, that the uh, person who leaked us to 4chan might be a whistleblower of some sorts. I mean, you could argue it in so many different ways. If you're going to be a whistleblower, would you leave your ID card in full view? But um, well, I, I always, I, I, that's a good point, a really good point. Um, I think that's definitely possible. It's also possible that you know you just have really bad upset. Like even mm. the people who should know better, they, people always make mistakes. So is this the whistleblower <laughs> equivalent of? Uh, Forgetting that your naked reflection is uh, reflecting in the in the teapot that you're putting on Craigslist. Uh, yeah, but I mean, I'd say the 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 fact that there's an ID in the shot, you could come up with all these different permutations, but it 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 does imply, um, you know, it, it does add to the potential for uh, veracity of this document. I would say. Not in any way a confirmation, but you know, uh, it kind of sets a stage of it narrows down maybe how 
and where this uh, this document was photographed. So, but when did this supposedly make its way to 4chan? Um, I believe it was uh, late last year. Okay. Yeah. Um, and the earliest references I could find online were from September, October, that area. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think September. So now with the with, with the big part of this, you know, the the twofold revelation of this is, uh, you know, this unspecified success with Tor and VPN on one hand, and on the other hand, this uh, intent to try to keep track of more anonymous cryptocurrencies like Monero and such. Yeah. I don't know how just how big of a revelation is this if this could be verified. Well, I think uh, it's it's just another you know example of how the um, government is trying to track cryptocurrencies and how they're trying to compromise in it anonymity services like Tor and I2P and your VPNs. Um, and you know, I think it's important for people to know that uh, the government's you know using resources to track. Mm. I don't think any of us are surprised or should be surprised that this kind of behavior is going on. I think the more surprising part is that this is a joint NSA army project. Like mm. This isn't the FBI who had previously been doing yeah. a lot of work. Similar with to you know, that same implication we found in that uh, data dump on the uh, Amazon S3 store. Yeah. Um, you know what are what do you guys think the implications are that the military is there is there some difference or, or, or matter for concern because a straight up military branch is involved in this versus uh, intelligence gathering agency or or is it just kind of like you know do you want to die by fire or ice? I don't remember the exact quote from Admiral Adama from Battlestar Galactica, but something to the effect of, you know, the police is what you use to protect and keep your citizens in line, and the military is what you use to fight external enemies, and when you use the military to police your citizens, your citizens become the enemies. Yeah. Uh, I, I understand why the military would be interested in this. Yeah. I understand why the military would be doing these kinds of things overseas, the concern is that the internet isn't neatly divided into this is the United States region and mm -hmm. this is the everywhere else region. And to and, that extent, the GWOT, the Global yeah, War on Terror, is uh, is uh, you know not neatly uh, broken down into domestic versus right foreign. And, you know, Tor is global. Yeah, I think it's uh, another another big thing. There is, you know, of course, they're going to to fight terrorism, but and it's really interesting that they're mentioning, you know, drug interdiction, because um, that kind of gets into law enforcement operation, and, you know, the Posse Comitatus Act and uh, Department of Defense regulations say that uh, the military is not allowed to, you know, conduct law, domestic law enforcement operations. They can only assist. Right. Mm. And... The NSA is not a law enforcement agency. No. So, uh, divide by zero. Do we know much about the context that this appeared on 4chan? Um, you know, was it literally just posted alone without any comment? Um, I believe there was wasn't really any comment to it. Mm -hmm. uh, 
It was interestingly posted to the slash biz board, which is the business and finance section, not the infamous slash B, which is their sort of random, terrible place on the internet. (laughs) But I guess the the fact that it was posted to the slash biz um, is is of note in that there could be some, as Divide by Zero mentioned earlier, um, desire to spread FUD, fear, uncertainty, and... um, uh, disinformation yeah. about cryptocurrencies, but so with this having ostensibly been out there per se on you know 4chan, it's interesting to me that it this hasn't been, really been picked up by media, even the tech media. Like I said, we we only found like one really unknown site that did any kind of uh, comment on it, but. Yeah, that was the one I found. Yeah. There was also a forum post where somebody referenced that and pasted the uh, the text of it, but there didn't seem to be any further discussion of it. No. So you know that that's why we decided to uh, to make you our patriot for this episode, divide by zero, because uh, we look forward to the opportunity that we can you know pick up on something that maybe was slept on and kind of open up the discussion about this document and and you know maybe maybe our listeners have some further analysis that they would be willing to share with us but i'm really surprised that the the you know if this has been as out there as long as you've noted that we seem to be the first or or maybe the second to really kind of shine a light on this yeah but um i i would infer this is a leak you know, if it can be verified. But, um, all right, so Divide by Zero from Deep Dot Web. Thank you again for bringing this to our attention. Uh, you are our patriot for this episode, and uh, I guess our pariah, maybe we'll uh, name uh, this James P. Henry CW4 as our pariah, at least. Uh, admittedly, we may be killing the messenger there, but in lack of any other name, we'll name him as our pariah this week. So, Divide by zero, thank you. And James P. Henry, redacted. (laughs) Thanks for having me on. All right, so that was definitely intriguing. And uh, we'll be sure to be following up on that as uh, time goes on. But in the meantime, head to our website, privacypatriots.org. We have a link to Divide by Zero's written assessment of this mysterious potentially leaked document so um next up uh i had a chance to talk with theo chino who is from our new york city chapter of restore the fourth about all sorts of things from cryptocurrency law to uh surveillance technology reform down in new york city because there's just just in New York City alone, there's so many things going on. So I, I was glad that we had a chance to hear from him. All right. So I, I am very pleased to be joined by Theo Chino, finally, uh, who's our uh, Restore the Fourth ch- Chapter chair in New York City. But uh, you're also the founder of the New York City Privacy Advocacy Board, or, or I'm sorry, the New York City Privacy Board Advocates. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Hi, John. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> good, 
great to have you. So, um, you know, we've been, you've been kind of just a wild man doing, uh, you were involved in so much stuff. I, it was, I felt it was, uh, I felt remiss if we, you know, didn't get you on here to kind of introduce to people all the stuff that you have going on uh, in New York City and elsewhere. And it sounds like I picked a perfect time. Uh, we, and it was probably good that we, we ended up postponing this interview twice, but uh, new and exciting things happened in those 48, 48 hours. But first of all, can you just quickly tell people what uh, the New York City Privacy Board advocates were about? You You, you seemed like you were really focused on a, on a very specific goal with that group, which is always good in activism? Well, the, the, the privacy board is a simple idea. It's a, it's a place, the idea originally was a place for every stakeholder in the computer world, whether it's law enforcement or hacker, to get a place where we can discuss privacy issues. Because privacy, it's a bigger word than it sounds. So the idea was simply a place where we can have this discussion. Mm-hmm. And we get together and we discuss and we define each of the terms that needs to be defined for privacy, computer hacker, a bad guy. Even the word bad guy, what is a bad guy? And all these need to be defined in a way where the lawmaker or the or the policymaker can understand. Mm. Now, and was today, the was the privacy the idea of the privacy board? If I understand, was uh, this would be a board under the city council, correct? To to uh, consider issues of privacy and law enforcement and otherwise in the New York City area. Yes, it was for New York City. It was kind of modeled like the rent guideline board. Okay. where you have this rent guideline where you have the tenant and you have the landlord and each one sits there on that board once a year. They throw chairs at each other <laughs> because that's what they do. That's New York. So we throw chairs at each other. But at the end of the day, a percentage rent increase or decrease gets voted by mm-hmm. that rent guideline board. Yeah. And So, so you want to do that for privacy in a sense. Yes. So where the cops, the, the hacker, the tenant, everybody, all the stakeholder gets in this room. If we have to throw each other a chair, be it. It has to be contentious, be it. But right now the discussion, to the, as it exists today, is between law enforcement on one side via the media, the hacker through the underworld, and each other talk to nobody mm. and there is no one in the middle saying that's a good idea or that's a bad idea mm. are now, we now what are the latest developments on uh, a privacy board for new york city did that come to be my understanding there was a sudden um announcement about a privacy officer can you tell us about that yes it was incredible uh i cannot take credit for it because i don't know the development but out of another uh, committee came out the the position of a chief privacy officer. Mm-hmm. So the, the Charter of New York, which is basically the constitution of the city of New York, has been amended uh, the 27th of December or November 
has been amended to include the creation of the privacy chief, the chief privacy officer, and that the law, the Charter of New York, state what are his duties in terms of he needs to make a report, he needs to do this, he needs to get the stakeholder together, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so the mayor didn't sign it, So, but it became law because it was introduced. It's one of those New York complicated things. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, we do have that position. Yeah. And, in, and the, 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 the mayor has 90 days to appoint someone to that position. Okay. So, so are you... We, are you satisfied with that, or are you still looking to pursue a full committee or board? Well, the the thing is, the, the, the one of the duty is to put together some sort of a board. Mm. So it's already the thing is, are all the stakeholders included? And that's what we're going to discover. Yeah. But the first thing we're going to do as a New York Privacy Board advocate is to try to figure out what does the mayor has as an idea of his duty what are his priority mm-hmm. how does he view pr- privacy who is and so we got we got about 60 days from now to go talk to the mayor try to make a meeting try to have a meeting with the mayor and talk about what do you see how do you see that ownership mm-hmm. how do you see law enforcement how do you see all those things together and what are the duty of this person in regard of the duty that the charter said he has to have. Now, do you ultimately consider this to be good news, the the announcement of a privacy officer? Well, they haven't announced it, but yes, it is good news. It came mm-hmm. completely from the left field. It came from, we don't know. The thing is, I know that from looking at the people who were co-sponsoring the bill originally, some those are some of the people we talked to. Mm. Uh, were part of the people who originally co-sponsored the bill. So the, the the problem they were trying to tackle was an immigration problem. Okay. And the the thing is, the privacy also include immigration, and maybe one of those law policymakers said, huh, I remember someone talking to me about the privacy thing. Maybe we should get that person in there. Mm. And suddenly they created the board out of the blues and mm. it is good news and we'll see where it goes from there now so, another another thing on the landscape in new york city in terms of uh privacy is the post act which uh was an attempt to uh codify some sort of oversight specifically on law enforcement surveillance technology the use of that um do you have any status of that or, or any kind of update? Well, not really for today as far as the NYPD is concerned mm. for the Post Act. Mm. But there was uh, – I'm going to segue into the International Conference of Cybersecurity that took place this, the last few days mm-hmm. here in New York. So, yeah, that was um, – like I said, you're you're kind of all over the place, and in my in my understanding, this was a conference held at Fordham University in the Bronx, correct? No, in well, it, it was held in their uh, in their downtown. They're from the Bronx, but it was held in their downtown campus. Okay, and, and this brought re- a lot of big names in cybersecurity, mostly on the government side of things, uh, right? To yes. discuss. Cyber, well, the, the future of cybersecurity. 
Yes, he brought. Uh, he was. He was held by the FBI and Fordham University. Mm-hmm. And one thing I discovered that by the reason I segue into their conference is because the post act is about knowing what tool NYPD is using. Okay. Yeah. And even though they cannot talk about everything, the during the conference, I wasn't out of place by their tools. You know, they didn't talk about this specific tool yet. But mm. the, 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 the thing that it was interesting about that conference is the fact that law enforcement doesn't know. I have the feeling that they know what they're doing in terms of technicality. They're technical. They need help. They seem to be overwhelmed. Okay. And they don't. They need help, but they don't know yet how to frame that help request. Mm. So today, the help request is: we want you to call us. We come in and we'll fix stuff for you. Mm-hmm. And a partnership is a two-way road. And we still have to work. We still have miles away. But certain people within the FBI are looking into how do we redefine help. And the thing is, they know that the that people, what they call bad guy, they're very, the bad guy talks to each other. Mm-hmm. But talking to each other is very difficult yet for, for them. And oh, I see. That's what I got from the conference is mm-hmm. they're asking, they're trying to figure out how to ask for help and they don't know yet how to ask for help. Yeah. And we need to help the policymaker, which is also the people we vote for. Yeah. How to help the FBI protect us because let's be fair, the FBI is there to protect us and we need to be protected. I mean, this is not, but at the same time, we don't want them to abuse their rights. Yeah. It needs to be a balance. It needs to be a balance. Mm. And the thing is, yes, they don't care about 99% of the data they swipe. I mean, we talked about it. I asked for my privacy, and he says he doesn't care about my mm. what I do as a human being. But the problem is when they swipe their data, they swipe my data with it, which they don't care. But they're still swiping it, and that's where we have a breakdown in communication. Yeah. Is we know, we believe that you don't need that data. Yeah. But we need to figure out how to help you get the data you need without taking my data with it. Mm. If I'm not under investigation, you don't need my data to be collected, even by mistake. Now, would you say at this conference in particular – as a privacy advocate, were a uh, privacy activist, were you a minority? Oh, absolutely. I was the minority. Uh, there were other people who go to the DEF CON, HOPE, and all those conferences. Mm. But because I do not have a stake as a vendor, I do not have a stake as a law enforcement, I do not have a stake anymore as working for a Fortune 500 company. Yeah. Suddenly... My stake is more as a policymaker and educating the policymaker. So I have, I can break some taboos. Yeah. And I know I came, I, I, even the question I was asking, they didn't have any answer. But the fact that I raised them out loud 
and I came to their conference means that as a privacy advocate means that we are spilling into their world. Yeah. So maybe and, and we, they need to pay attention to what we're saying. And and it sounded like you 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 had a bit to say at this conference. <laughs> yes, because usually they they the, it seems like I've been there. This is the first time I go to one of those conferences of yeah. law enforcement. And when they finish speaking, they're asking who wants to ask for a question, and there is like a twenty second lag. So after twenty second, I go, I'll ask a question. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> So I do get the I had the opportunity to ask a lot of questions who were I think disturbing. I do recognize they were disturbing. And the thing is it it really creates a need for another type of conference which would be the hybrid of their conference and Defcon and mm -hmm. hope and having all of us together. Yeah, more of a duality. Yes, more of a duality, but yeah, where there is mutual. no, but there is no fear yeah. of if I tell you I did this, suddenly you're going to arrest me. Yeah. <laughs> do you have any? Do you have any examples of of queries that you made at this conference? Well, I ask. I mean, uh, John Brenner, who used to be the previous CIA director, uh, proposed at the highest level. Uh, to have like kind of a Manhattan Project uh, cybersecurity discussion, uh -huh. and he really he, he basically was talking as a privacy board. Basically, was talking about doing the privacy board advocate, but giving it a name for law enforcement. Mm. And so he's talking about this Manhattan Project cyber conference where we need to get all the stakeholders together. Yeah, and and. That's what was interesting is there is a need for a bigger conference which includes everybody, not yeah. just like at DEFCON meet the Fed, where it's like uh, they already come prepare, but they don't. The thing is, that I think in the federal government, in the law enforcement, they don't want to. Sh they playing poker, poker, mm -hmm. and they don't want to give you the card. Now, what, and, now when you and I were were chatting, you you'd, you'd mentioned that. You'd gotten a uh, someone from uh, the National Institute of Standards to admit that there was no, th there's really no way to do a, uh, a backdoor encryption scheme that will really work. And in in, in that, are we kind of setting the base a new baseline? That I mean, because that's the broken record that we are constantly hearing from uh, all sorts of law enforcement that end-to-end uh, -end encryption uh, is a threat to national safety, to public safety. Um, but it's it, anything else is not, it is not a reality in my opinion, but it sounded like you got some people to echo that opinion. Well, yes. I mean, uh, when uh, Christopher Ray, who's today uh, the FBI director, came and said, we have 8,000 phones that have been locked and we cannot get into them, mm -hmm. uh, the, 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 the echo that was taking over in the paper and is his complaint. And later on today, there was, uh, because the, the national standard belongs to the Department of Commerce. Yeah. And... They define standard for everything, whether second, a meter, a miles, 
and they also define what encryption standard the government has to use to be protected. Mm. And they're developing encryption standard for quantum computer. They're also developing non-quantum computer encryption standard for cell phone. And they're trying to work on that. Mm. And I took the opportunity to set uh, my question. And I said, uh, the, the complaint we hear is we need to have, when a warrant is signed, to have a way to get into cell phone. Yeah, and what, and they don't call that the back door, of course. And I asked the question: Is there a warrant? Is there something in the effect that is there a warrant? And they, are you guys working on a warrant-enabled encryption system, or is such a system possible? Mm. And the gentleman from the National Standard, director of the encryption, goes no. And <laughs> that was funny because they said that in the ninety they tried and it didn't work really? out. <laughs> and but the thing is, many of the people there heard that question. The question wow. is posed not from me, but coming from the guy from the National Institute of Standard. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't get anyone more neutral yeah. in the story. Yeah, but him. you're standing there prompting that. So, like, well, of uh, course, because you know, I'm just picturing like that uh, <laughs> the gentleman in the old Norman Rockwell painting. Who's standing up and uh, expressing his voice, and you know, you're you're making them put it on the line that you know, end-to-end uh, -end encryption, you know, uh, can't be secure and have a backdoor at the same time. So how do we move on from here? Exactly, and the the thing is, he's a, he's remember he's the Department of Commerce. Yeah. So he doesn't have a stake in law enforcement. Okay. He's Interesting. But he said this really all in in front of law enforcement. Well, it was in front of law enforcement, but the, of course, when you're talking to law enforcement, I think uh, conference, they're not applauding. They they really play poker face. Yes, and I so can you imagine. don't have a, you cannot get a, a, a feedback from the room. Yes, no, whatever. But certain <laughs> but certain people started asking questions in that direction. Wow. And well, so, good for you. So it did have an effect. Yeah. I hope I started the conversation. I don't know if I will be reinvited, if I will <laughs> be able to buy a ticket in 2019. <laughs> we'll see. Well, speaking of which, uh, uh, speaking of being a heel, uh, <laughs> your boy Cyrus Vance Jr. was there, my understanding. Yes, and actually he was the... the That's the uh, New York City District <laughs> Attorney who was who was one of the many voices saying, you know, we need responsible encryption, we need to backdoor encryption yes he is and he was there and i will say this for the record i bought my ticket before his name was on the program okay <laughs> because yeah. but I you've you've feeling. interacted with him before correct yes and unfortunately the interaction we have is either at this conference where he's doing a public speech i am in the room and <laughs> This is going on all over the place now. You're I mean, like you're like his Michael Moore. Yes, I am his <laughs> Michael Moore. But the thing is, the other day he did. Unfortunately, I couldn't get there. Uh, I am a French citizen, and he did the whole thing about the same complaint about the phone in front of the French consul with oh, wow. the French pro uh, prosecutor. Yeah. And I, I, I and the, the email of the invite went to my spam box, so I couldn't be there. But uh, I would have been there to ask the same question over. 
But the problem is Cyrus Vance and his team refused to have a discussion. And mm-hmm. it was funny because after the, the I went to go towards him to say, can we finally talk? I mean, are we on the same level or still not? Yeah. And his security detail kind of pushed me away. And they're like, oh, wow. he's having lunch. He has to leave. He cannot talk to you. <laughs> so I talked to her press pe- person. Okay. I gave her my card and all that. And then I went to talk to the national, the, the guy from the Department of Commerce. But Cyrus Vance was there for another half an hour while I was talking to him. So basically, I call bullshit or BS. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, no, and, we can curse. <laughs> oh, we can curse. Okay, I call bullshit. Mm-hmm. But this is the thing is I've been trying to extend olive branch to him and yeah. to his office, and he refused. Yeah. I'm, all he needs to do is sit down with me for an hour and a half, bring a few mathematicians, and go over the article from Art, Art Seneca that has a great primer on encryption. Mm-hmm. You know, that, and let's go over the math and then tell me how to do it. Mm-hmm. And so he made an announcement that was interesting, and I hope everybody gets on it. He said that he, has, uh, he, he founded a nonprofit. And they have put some software for small business to use to defend themselves about cyber cyber stuff. Okay. But I don't know yet if the software is open source, where is the code, or anything. So I will call upon the hacker community to take a look at those two software that he put his office put out, and let's dissect it. Yeah, let's give it and an audit. He, yeah, let's give it an audit. And see if that software is really. Let's first check that there is no backdoor in that software. <laughs> <laughs> now I'd be uh, I'd be remiss if I talked to you and I didn't um, note that you're you're a really big uh, cryptocurrency advocate and you've been you've been uh, directly involved in you know what i'll call cryptocurrency law um a lot of a lot of uh you know uh, policy regarding cryptocurrency is still yet to be hashed out and you're kind of on the front lines of that in my understanding you 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 were involved yourself with a a court case uh with the uh, new york state department of financial services is that correct Yes, I am. I, w- I am still involved in that lawsuit. I, I have a lawsuit against the, the what is called the bid license in New York State. And what is that? Uh, we are talking about it. Uh, and uh, the judge has decided, uh, she wrote uh, a piece saying, I do not have the standing to bring a lawsuit against oh, the department. One of those, those standing issues. But what is what is a bid license, per se? The bid license is if you want to do any business with Bitcoin mm-hmm. where you don't have the custody, you have the custody of the Bitcoin that belong to someone else, mm-hmm. you need to have the permission of the state of New York. Okay. And, and, and why do they, why do they think that? <laughs> because or, they think that because you're holding someone else, uh, someone else property. Yeah. They want to treat it like an investment or uh, a portfolio or something like almost like that. I don't know. Like a I financial mean, product of some sort. They 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 consider a financial asset. Oh okay. 
and as such, but at the same time, the, the Department of Financial Service uh, kind of called it also um, – uh, how, how do you say? They say they use that as a foreground for the cyber – for their regulation for cyber criminal thing. Okay. And they put out new regula- – they use this regulatory rule on the bid license to do some cyber stuff. Uh, regulation on big bank and stuff on insurance company and things like that mm-hmm. and it was funny because yesterday also during the conference there was another presenter uh, who who deal with the uh, regulation and things like that and I asked him about the New York D- Department of Financial cyber license mm-hmm. that they came out and I had the feeling that the the gentleman was very diplomatic on saying, yes, New York is the foreground on that kind of regulation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But they didn't, they didn't, I had the feeling that they weren't jumping on it. Okay. <laughs> so I don't know where where that thing stands, but hmm. the thing is we are appealing the decision uh, on standing that the Department of Finance is, uh, the, the that they have the authority, you know, to do that. Yes. All right. Well, yeah, de- definitely keep us posted on that. And maybe you could uh, get us up to date on another cryptocurrency case because uh, um, I guess you you flew out to, to observe the U.S. v. Costanza case, a.k.a. Uh, Morpheus. Uh, can you tell us a, a, a bit about that for those who aren't familiar well, with that case? Yes. Oh, it's a sim- it's a case that uh, it's a simple case where the the federal government believe that Bitcoin is bad. Yeah. So we start with that premise, and they arrested someone. Mm-hmm. Uh, they arrested the top trader on localbitcoin.com. Okay. This was Thomas Costanza, him. is that right? Yeah, Thomas Costanzo, and his handle on local Bitcoin is Morpheus, and Morpheus Titania actually. And they arrested him, and they were expecting to find the new uh, dead Robert Pirate. Okay. They walk in, they go in, and they find nothing. Yeah. Because the man only used Bitcoin as a trader. Yeah. And so basically, they charge him with money laundering. Oh, uh, no, boy. they charge him with two count of, I believe, money, money transmission without a license, a FinCEN license, money conspiracy to money transmission without a license, five count of money laundering. And because they went through his house, they found a bullet and they held him in jail because of the bullet. Just a single bullet? Well, they found a box of mix oh. and match bullets. Okay. And this is Arizona. <laughs> So in Arizona they have bullet like we have twenty five cents quarter in our <laughs> Yeah, probably in the cushions of their couch, right? Exactly. <laughs> so the thing is he had a prior marijuana felony on his record. Sure. So basically they accuse him of being a felon without a li- without ammunition uh, ammunition held by a felon. Yeah. Now do you think he's being kind of propped up just as an example? Yes he is. Yeah, there is no doubt. So what? Uh, what did you observe? You know, uh, at what point are they in the case? Insofar as when, when you left off, left off from it when you were in Arizona. So I went to Arizona to view the motion discussion. 
So they discuss before trial, they go over every little detail, whether that was just or not just. They don't go, they don't bother the trial, they don't bother a jury with everything. Mm -hmm. So they do some preliminary work and they call motion and they go back at it saying, judge, I had the right to do that. The other side goes, no, you didn't have the right. Mm. You went above the force. You, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't follow the force amendment. And so this gets thrown out because of those rules. Okay. And so there were some force amendment issue in that case. And mm. for example, the grand jury testimony, usually what, how, what, how it happened is the grand jury testimony, the, the FBI or the department of justice gives the cliff note. Okay. And they say, well, we, we said that, and we did this, we charged them with that, the grand jury understood, and now it's here. And in that case, uh, in this case, uh, the, the defense is asking for the whole note and the whole transcript. Mm. What would fire in front of the grand jury? And that was a big argument, and the judge said, guys, I understand that usually you give the cliff note, but in this case, I have the feeling that something is not right, give everything to the other side. Okay. Uh, for example, there was another motion saying uh, the FBI was crazy and was outrageous, and this is why. The judge didn't take that argument very well, so they didn't drop all the, all the, the money laundering. Mm -hmm. There was a motion saying Bitcoin is not money. Okay. So that, uh, instead of arguing that, the government say, oh, we're not going to argue those motions. Uh, we're going to drop those two charges. So now they drop the charges on the money laundering. Okay, On the good. money without a license. I and see. then there was the bullet. And then they start arguing about what is a felony in Arizona. Mm -hmm. And a marijuana felony is a maximum of one year. But the felony on the federal level is when you get more than one year. But it sounds so to me like they're just... Medical discussion over yeah. one day sounds like they're just throwing things against the wall to see what sticks yes that's what <laughs> lawyers do yeah but here the discussion was very interesting over that one day maximum stop at one year and the felony on a federal level start at one year and a day yeah so the bullet well since he only got one year in arizona that doesn't count in a federal court so the bullet is out so what's left? Just five charges of money laundering. Okay. So now the the government has to prove that he had the intent to do money laundering in yeah. front of a jury. Okay. So now we take twelve people and we say, did he have the intent to do money laundering when yeah. he did that deal? And is that what's yet to happen? That have that's yet what to happen, mm -hmm. and that will happen in March. Okay. All right. So. You are. I, I almost will call you a, a privacy superhero. You're. You're. You're everywhere <laughs> that there's a need. It seems like you're showing up. Uh, but you know, continue to keep up the good work um, in New York Thanks. City. Uh, New York City really needed this kind of advocacy uh, for quite a long time, and you really <laughs> stepped up to the plate in just uh, the last year or so. Yes, I, I have been too much, I have been everywhere. And the thing is, I take it where it leads me. Mm -hmm. Every every discussion I, I take with the stakeholder, 
I start following the lead and I go one by one. And mm-hmm. if it takes me where it takes me, it took me to this FBI conference today. Yeah. Well, I <laughs> so, hope you. T- I hope as you go along, you take us with you, and uh, we appreciate you for joining us today. Very, very informative. Thank you, John, for having me, and I'll talk to you later then. All right, well, that about wraps things up. I think we'll really be following that revelation that we had from Divide by Zero. Uh, The potential leak uh, almost opens up more questions than answers, and I think we'll have a lot more to talk about. But uh, So stay tuned uh, for future episodes and keep an eye on our social media uh, as we kind of examine that further. We hope you enjoyed Episode 9 of Privacy Patriots the official podcast of Restore the Fourth. Thanks for listening, and we hope to have you join us for the next episode. Head over to www.privacypatriots.org where you can get further connected with us on Reddit, Twitter, and Facebook. So keep watching the watchers, and stay tuned as we give you the information you need to keep your information your own.